Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff Cuse. I teach at Seattle Pacific University, um, but also a congregant. My family uh, comes to the 11 o'clock service. Why? Because we're lazy. And we, but, but you guys are obviously more spiritually attuned in here in the morning services. Um, uh, we are going to be continuing our series as a church together in the book of Romans, which began last year. I know it's hard to remember 2018, but we did begin our series. And we're going to continue now as we've come through the season of Advent and Epiphany uh, to pick up the narrative of the book of Romans together. And I look forward to joining all of you as a church as we go through this season together to see what God has in store. The thing about Romans is Romans is an explosive text. It is not for the fainted heart. It draws courage and faithfulness out of us as we encounter this text. It is literally a book that has changed the world, not merely for churches, but for the world as we know it. 500 years ago, the German Augustinian monk Martin Luther, in his prayers and reflections on what God was calling him to, turned to the book of Romans, and his eyes fell upon this call of righteousness through grace. And it literally transformed, kind of lit the fuse that had been building for a while that gave us the Reformation in a different way of thinking about ourselves and personal responsibility. I mean, just a huge impact that's happened over 500 years. Just at the turn of the 20th century, as Europe was going through the regrets and challenges after World War I, and as the dust was settling and the ferment was starting to grow around national socialism and the beginning of the Nazi movement, this young Swiss pastor who was doing union organizing named Karl Barth fell upon this book of Romans, and as he turned to it and reflected on it, was driven to write a commentary called Der Romanbrief in the German in 1922 that just caused this huge impact in churches around the world to take seriously sin, to get reintroduced to the power of the cross, and churches around the world took seriously the responsibility of confronting everything from national socialism to poverty to personal responsibility. This is a book that causes us to think and to act. Akin to the great lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, I say that Romans is a good book but not tame. A good book but not tame. It is an is a book that as we enter into it is going to demand something from us and central to Romans as we get back into the text together as a church is to remember that it is a prophetic call. Romans is going to call us to act and live a certain way which is central to what we're going to hear in chapter 12 today. It is to take stock of the joys and the sufferings of our life and the life of our neighbor and those around us and to act accordingly and this is the bottom line to believe that God is real. To act from the very depths of our souls and believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is not an idea, not merely something of fancy, not a good philosophical aphorism, but is actually the power of God in our time for us to change lives and be transformed by it. This is what Romans is calling us to. Now, we live in a world with competing narratives that challenge us, that call us in different directions. One of my favorite writers, uh, probably familiar to some of you, is uh, Wendell Berry. He's an essayist and poet. Um, He calls himself a farmer because he's lived on his family farm in Kentucky his entire life. Um, He writes about the land and the responsibility of living close to the land and what nature can teach us about the world. But he's also very prophetic. And as an activist in his writing, he talks about the challenges he sees and the dehumanizing nature of the world in which you live in. And one of his poems that I want to start with is entitled, Even While I Dreamed, I Prayed. Let me read this for you. I want you to listen for his description of what he calls the objective, the objective. 
Even while I dreamed, I prayed that what I saw was only fear and up to no foretelling, for I saw the last known landscape destroyed for the sake of the objective. The soil bludgeoned, the rocks blasted. Those who had wanted to go home would never get there now. I visited offices where the facade, for the sake of the objective, the planners planned at blank desks set in rows. I visited loud factories where the machines were made that would drive forever forward toward the objective. I saw the forest reduced to stumps and gullies. I saw poisoned rivers, the mountain cast into the valley. I saw the city that nobody recognized because it looked like every other city. I saw the passages worn by the unnumbered footfalls of those whose eyes were fixed upon the objective. Their passing had obliterated the graves and monuments of those who had died in pursuit of the objective, who had long ago forgotten and, and drove to the inevitable rule of those who had forgotten to forget that they had been forgotten. Men, women, children now pursued the objective as if nobody had ever done it before. The once enslaved, the once oppressed were now free to sell themselves to the highest bidder and to enter into the best paying prisons in pursuit of the objective, which was the destruction of all enemies, which was the destruction of all obstacles, which was the destruction of all objects, which was to clear the way to victory, to clear the way to promotion, to salvation, to progress, to the completed sale, to getting the signature on the contract, which was to clear the way to self-realization, to self-creation, from which nobody who ever wanted to go home would ever get there now, for every remembered place had been displaced. The signposts were bent to the ground and covered over. And every place had been displaced, every love unloved, every vow unsworn, every word unmeant to make way for the passage of the crowd to the individuated, the autonomous, the self-actualized, the homeless, with their many eyes open toward the objective which they did not perceive in the far distance, having never known where they were going and having never known where they came from. These words that Barry lays before us ask the question, how has this objective shaped your life? To what end has the objective driven you, formed you, grounded you into something that is no longer recognizable as human in the eyes of God? How have we as a people, and dare I say it, as a church, given ourselves over to the objective? How have we sat and accepted with passivity the movements of the forces around us, making us into something unrecognizable to that which we are created to be? And as Barry lifts this up and challenges us with these words, we hear another voice in the book of Romans, calling us and reminding us yet again we were made for something more. That you who sit here loved by God, saved by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, were made for something more than just the objective. And so as we get into our verses this morning, remember that the objective is there, but God has something else to say. So let's listen to what Paul writes to us as we get into what is the alternative to the objective. And what Paul spells out for us in the very beginning is a calling for us not to be part of the objective, but to be a living sacrifice. So what does he mean by a living sacrifice? What does this phrase mean for us today? 
Well, as we hear this phrase, a living sacrifice, already at the beginning, we are challenged to think differently about things. The words living sacrifice, as they come together, create kind of an oxymoron in our minds, a bit like jumbo shrimp, right? It's this, it's this phrase, how is a sacrifice living? That makes no sense. And certainly to the listeners in first century Palestine who would have been listening to this letter and the churches receiving this, it would have seemed rather odd. For a sacrifice was something in the order of the day that you paid for, you bought, and you killed in order to be forgiven for who you were and what you had done. A sacrifice was about death through and through. It was about killing off something so something else can move on. And what Paul is doing by flipping the script on this is saying we are no longer as the people of God about the wages of death. We are about the people of life. And to be a living sacrifice is not to give in to the temptation of the objective of the age, which says that all things point us towards death and the dealing of death. In the first century, this would have been revolutionary. What do you mean that a sacrifice lives? I thought a sacrifice meant death. And given our current cultural moment, this is also a bit of a revolutionary statement as well. The amount of time and energy and capital in our culture that's given to finding efficient ways of destroying others, whether it is up close and personal, whether it is in social media platforms, or whether it's through drone strikes, the systematic destruction of people who are objectified for the sake of the objective is very much a part of our life. And whether we do it by destroying our enemies completely or whether we destroy the words they say because we don't like them, that we choose to end disagreements, we want homogeny versus diversity, whether we want to move away from conversations and move from the complexity of hard questions into more populous, simple answers for our life, these are all modes of the wages of death to what we've been created to be. And to be a living sacrifice is to turn to another way, or to use Paul's refrain, a better way for what we were created to be. So what is entailed for us to be living sacrifices? What does it mean to turn our backs on the wages of death and to choose to be living sacrifices for the world? Well, I've outlined in our bulletin this morning four descriptors that come from our passage today, and I'll walk you through each of these as maybe some words to hang on to, and I want you to think and pray as we walk through where these meet you this morning. First of all, the first move of being a living sacrifice is to be called and claimed, called and claimed. As we hear in verse one, the writer underscores that this calling to be a living sacrifice comes with these words. I appeal to you to present your bodies, Paul says. Paul first uses the verb uh, parakaleo, parakaleo, kaleo, this root word that he's using here is found in the word for calling, to be called. Um, and the church itself is often identified as the ecclesia, or the called out people of God. That we've been called from a certain way of being to become something that we were always meant to be. To be appealed to by Paul is not a sales pitch. Hey, I think this is a really great idea. Why don't you try this out? Paul is actually saying, you were made for this. From the foundations of the word, you've been called to be this thing and claimed by the God who loves you and forms you through and through. 
to present our bodies as these called and claimed people as well, the verb here is to yield. It's the fruits of what God has planted in us to be yielded for the sake of the world to benefit. It's the fruits of our lives. And oftentimes, we forget that we are fruit-bearing people when we're so battered and bruised in the world we're living in. Where we live out, out north, um, near our house, there is a public park that's near an elementary school. And when we first moved there, we discovered a hidden fruit orchard. Years ago, there was a farm that was there and it's been taken over by housing developments. But there are these plums and apples that are in the back. And like most so-called secrets, every kid knows it's there. Um, and so there's this passageway you kind of go through and people bring buckets and um, you can collect these, these apples that haven't been necessarily cared for that well, but there's a wildness to it, right? And they were meant to bear fruit and they continue to do so even though nobody is around to tend them. So it is with us. We have been planted deep for the bearing of fruit to prevent our bodies, souls, and spirits as called and claimed people of God. Secondly, to be a living sacrifice is to be blessed, is to understand our blessing before God. Paul goes on to say in here that in addition to being called as to appeal ourselves and presenting our bodies, we are called to be ones who are holy and acceptable, which is to be blessed by God. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, as well as Luke 6, where the Sermon on the Plain resides, Jesus pounds this notion of how important blessing is. Blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who seek after peace. This idea of blessing, makarios, is a unified factor that Jesus wants to present as saying, to be blessed, to be blessed by me is a vitally important characteristic of your identity. Now, what's curious about the Sermon on the Mount is what unifies these people who Jesus is calling blessed is all of them are hungering and thirsting for something they do not have, and they need God to fill them. They are hungry. They need provision that God can provide. They are weeping. They need solace that the Holy Spirit can provide. They want peace, and only God can bring the peace that's sustaining and lasting is shalom. Each of these examples of blessing are people who have been shaped in their lives to receive the inpouring of the Holy Spirit to be filled and therefore to be blessings for the world. To be see ourselves as blessed is to understand that we walk with confidence in a God who will fill and sustain us and mark us for this service. To be blessed as God's people as a living sacrifice is to have confidence to the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who freed the Israelites from captivity, who gave voices to Moses, who called the prophets to act with abandon in their commitment, that God, the God who gave strength to God's people to persevere under times of unbelievable torment. This God is here today. This God is here for you today to fill you, to bless you, to call you forward. This is who you've been created to be, to be receptacles to receive this empowerment. It is no different than it was when Jesus was being freed from and moving forward in his resurrected power. This resurrection is for you as well as God's blessing. Now it's hard to live into this blessing sometimes, to be marked as people who have been given this provision and people will not like it all the time. When we lived in Scotland, I served uh, for a season as the assistant minister of the Glasgow Cathedral. It's a high liturgical cathedral from the ninth century that I served in. 
And I was doing that while I was finishing my PhD work at the university. I would get in the mornings, I would get to the university, I would teach a class in the English faculty, I would do some seminars in the divinity faculty, and then I would change my clothes, literally change what I was wearing. I would put on a dark shirt, I would put on my preacher's collar, what's called a dog collar, I'd put that on, I'd put on a black blazer, I'd get on a bus and I'd go to the cathedral's precinct to give afternoon prayers at the cathedral. One afternoon, I was getting off the bus, and I was walking back to my flat, and a car drove by, and someone started screaming profanity, and one of the best parts about being in Glasgow is I couldn't understand what they were saying, Um, and uh, screaming profanity at me, and as I turned to see who was screaming at me, I was hit right in the chest with a strawberry milkshake, just whoosh, explodes everywhere, strawberry milkshake. And so I'm sitting there dripping strawberry milkshake, standing in my dog collar of the Church of Scotland, and I go back to my flat, and I open it up, and Diana's first words were, so how was your day? (laughs) Um, To live our lives of faith is to risk more than just merely being hit with a strawberry milkshake. To be out in the world where people see you as living people of faith that God has blessed and claimed and desires to use for service will mean at times that blessing will cost us. It will cost us job promotions. It will cost us conversations we have with people who want to be toxic and snarky and angry at the table and we will maybe have to choose affirming life as opposed to denying it all the time. It may mean that we have to walk in and make decisions that the the, the so-called culture around us views as success that we will have to view a different path. It will cost you something. And for many of you, you've walked that path. You've endured much more than being hit with a milkshake for being a Christian in this world. But the question is, is your blessing costing you something? And people do, or do people see you and understand that you're walking in this way? Which gets to the third part about being a living sacrifice. In addition to being called and claimed and blessed, to be a living sacrifice is also to be broken and remade. Broken and remade. The word for acceptable that's used by Paul to be holy and acceptable as this living sacrifice calls us to remember that we need to set aside what we draw strength on and turn back to drawing our strength on the Lord. This is what's denoted by being made acceptable, to be remade and refashioned so God can use us in this world. It's a calling to be broken, to be released from the temptations to rely on our willpower and our strength, and to allow God to carry us and move us and transform us so God can use us. It means that as we sit in our families, we have to ask the question, are we living the Christian life as a family together in our choices? We have to sit in this as students as we think about the way we study and the way we face forward with the gifts God has given us with this time. Are we stewarding our vocation in a way that God can use us? We have to sit with this in our own sense of success and the metrics by which we measure what is success in this world. Are we allowing ourselves to be broken and remade so God can use us at this time? In contrast to being people-pleasing and being overly shy about living into our faith, to be broken and to be transformed into living sacrifices means that we'll have to live with humility, gentleness, compassion, mercy, and it will cause risk, a risk of faith. Jesus reminds us over and over in his ministry that to be followers means we're going to be wounded healers in this world, that we're going to be people who are going to have to make space for others in our brokenness so that God can be using us in that brokenness in many ways.
And lastly, to live our calling as living sacrifices means that we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. It is not about us. In this, we have our fourth descriptor, which is to be given away. To be a living sacrifice is to be given away for the sake of the gospel. In verse one, we hear that in the end, a living sacrifice is holy and blessed, made acceptable, broken and remade for God. And then we are commissioned to be given away as what Paul is talking about as a spiritual worship, a spiritual worship, a spiritual tithing of our lives for the sake of the gospel. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Romans, put it this way when he described what faith is at its core, what Paul is trying to tell us what faith is. He said, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's presence that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such a confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, bold in your relationship of God to all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith, and because of it, you're freely, willingly, and joyfully, you can do good works for others, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. In this way, Luther says, it's impossible to separate faith from works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Heat and light from fire. To be given away as living sacrifices is to be the tinder and the wood to burn bright so that the world can no longer live in darkness but can see a great light. It is for us to be given away to allow ourselves to burn brightly with the fire of the Holy Spirit so they can see the redemptive power in you, can hear the story of forgiveness, can see the possibility of reconciliation in a troubled time. To live in this bold way is our act of spiritual worship as we give away. Now, Paul continues on, though, because he says to be this spiritual, to be this living sacrifice is also to be torn and to be challenged in a particular way, which he says in verse 2 and then leading into verse 3, he says, on one hand, do not be conformed to this age or this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This first part, do not be conformed to this age or this world, is a bold reminder that as living sacrifices, we're always being formed by the objective. Even as we live into being called and claimed, even as we are blessed, even as we are broken and remade, even as we are given away, we still always have that siren call of the objective pulling us away from what we've been created to be. And we can be conformed, we can be reshaped at any given time back into a place and in a way that is not how God wants to use us. Years ago when I was um, in college, I had that rite of passage that many college students have, which is that faithful trip to Ikea to buy bookshelves. And uh, so I, I you know, drove to Ikea in my Dodge Dart, picked up some bookshelves that were said to be, quote unquote, easy to assemble, and brought, brought them home with me to my apartment. So I got to it. I squitted the instructions in Swedish. I um, kind of looked at the little arrows that were pointing to different things. Um, and they had these little wooden pegs. And so I'm like trying to get the pegs in the hole, using the glue to kind of put this thing together. And it was a big mess. And my roommate came home, saw what I was doing on the floor, started to help me. And as we started kind of putting our minds together around this, it became very clear there were two things were amiss. Number one, the instructions were for the wrong set of bookshelves, um, and two, that most of the pegs were the wrong size. Now, I say the reason how we discovered this was because of this very fact. 
I took a hammer and I pounded as hard as I could to get those pegs into those holes. And they did. They split the wood. I was able to crush this thing together with some epoxy. And they held my books for like two years. And then they ended up in a landfill somewhere at the end, which is, I'm not proud of. But that was the end of the life of those bookshelves. In the end, I made those bookshelves work for me. I used force and will to make them work. I crammed pegs that were never meant to go in those holes, and I made them fit. And we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We're served up something that we feel can't possibly be right, can't possibly be the way things are supposed to be, and we will pound, and we will glue, and we will drill our way into making things work. I've seen this in the years of ministry with people and their families, where they decide it has to work this way, and they will pound it and pound it and pound it till it gives a semblance of functionality. I see this with people in the way that they deal with their own career path, where they will pound and they will beat and they will make it work because the alternative of calling is so terrifying that they're just gonna keep pounding as opposed to listening. I see this in relationships. I see people who have sustained toxic relationships with friends that drag them into the objective as opposed to being living sacrifices because the fear of being alone and being isolated is so terrifying they would rather stay in those relationships over time, not seeing how they're being formed and pounded and made and conformed into something they don't recognize. I see it over and over, and I see it in my own life too, how I've given myself over to being conformed as opposed to what Paul is calling us instead, which is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, the word mind here is used as really full-bodied, mind, soul, and spirit. The word used here, metamorpho, is a complete transformation that we're called to over and over and over in service of Christ. The place that is used as well in very important ways for us is 2 Corinthians 13, where the, sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where we hear in the letter to Corinthians that they are called to be transformed, transfigured into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. That, we're, that Christ is not done with you as a living sacrifice, wanting to transfigure, transform you into a deep, deep sense of glory. One of the ways I've been really challenged on this big question of not being conformed to the world but being transformed into a new way of being from glory to glory lately has been in some of my work with churches in the Pacific Northwest. I have had the opportunity to work with a number of congregations throughout the Pacific Northwest through a large grant that we've been given to follow them five years in a longitudinal study about how they are effective in serving young adults. And one of the resources I've been using a lot in my work has been an economist by the name of Jeff Sachs, who's a professor at Columbia University and served as a special advisor to the United Nations Secretary General on Sustainable Development Goals. Sachs is a really interesting figure in that he has been working with a number of countries, uh, working with Poland and Russia after the communist regime fell helping economic challenges in Bolivia, and in 95 went to Zambia to see how he could bring principles of life to these countries to help them be more sustainable. One of the things that came out of Sachs's work is in 1971, the fourth king of Bhutan took the floor of the United Nations and asked this question. Where so much of the world had been measuring success as a country based on gross national product, he asked this question, why are we pursuing gross national product when we should be pursuing gross national happiness? 
gross national happiness. And Bhutan went ahead as a very economically poor country and actually started to set up mechanism for a detailed survey measurement to measure gross national happiness. It set up this commission, it had legislation that evaluated a happiness cost-benefit ratio for all its people. It began to transform its priorities as a country. How do we allocate our time and resources to our children? How do we create moments where people can talk to each other? How are the elderly seen, heard, and responded to? And while Bhutan is not the economic juggernaut commanding the attention of the world stage that gives the world the newest iPhone, that can have immersive video games, or can give the world an expansion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe each year. While it's not that country, it is a country that's happier on this scale than the United States of America. It is a paradox at this point that Sachs has now set up what he calls the World Happiness Report each year in the United Nations. And the United States continues to fall in our happiness report. Our income continues to rise per person and happiness does not. We continue to fall behind in our physical health, our mental health, our opioid addictions are skyrocketing. The social support within our network, people are terrified of not being supported. The honesty with which we see government and the lack of trust we have even for our neighbors. So I began to take this on board and thinking this through in my work with churches. And as I began to interview churches and we're following them over five years, our study has begun with this question that we began with last year. How do you define faithfulness as a church? In the first year of our study, we had a number of churches who didn't know how to answer the question. They had thought a lot about reports that they generated, of course, how to measure things. They reported their tithing each week. They reported their attendance each week, their growth of various ministries and the new ministries they started. But these were all growth indicators in the purest sense of the world that culture does. The growth of GDP, the growth of income, borrowed from industry and applied to ministry. The crazy thing is that these metrics were not seen in the scriptures. They're not there. The measurements that are there about faithfulness, it's all over the place. So we thought, hey, let's be crazy. Let's give them tools to measure faithfulness. In the second year of our study we're entering now, we're seeing profound changes in some of our churches. They're seeking to ask, how many times do we talk to each other after church? How often do we participate in ministry in some way? What are the ways in which we take home the Bible and talk about it with our kids after the service? What would faithfulness look like as a measurement that we hold up as a priority? And that's my question for you this morning as we begin to think through what it means to be living sacrifices. How are you measuring faithfulness to Jesus Christ today? How are you measuring being a living sacrifice in your personal life? And who gets to do the measurement in your work life, in your family life? in your devotional life. What would it mean for faithfulness to be at the very core of your life? So as we move through this, we are reminded over and over again by Paul that to be living sacrifices is who we are, not the objective, not the clamoring call and distractions of measuring us against metrics of performance that we were never made for in the first place. As we see it moving forward in the chapter and as we continue to look at it as a church at this, I hope it challenges us. I hope our world gets rocked, don't you? I hope Romans just lays on top of us a calling for us as a church to become what you were always meant to be. 
loved by God, felt by God, heard by God, desired by God to serve and to be loved to the core of your being. Remember when I said Romans was going to cost us something? It's only the beginning. It's only the first three verses of this chapter. And here we are, brothers and sisters, at this question. Do you want to be a living sacrifice? Because that's who you are. It's who you are. To offer yourself to the world, to offer yourself to each other, not paying for someone else's goat and sheep to kill on an altar, to put away the need that you have deep in your being. No, but what would it mean for you to be that sacrifice? To live in promise and, and, and hope for the world to see. What would it mean to be that this day? My hope and prayer is that we can do that work together. Martin Luther King made this prophetic observation, and let me close with these words. The ultimate weakness of violence in our day is that it is a descending spiral, beginning the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. How will you love well this day? Trusting in God's call on your life to be a living sacrifice who drives and pushes you to be shaped and transformed into the likeness of Christ, who desires you to be living sacrifices of faithfulness for his sake. Bethany, I'm ready for this. I think you are too. So I hope we're ready for this journey together as we come together around God's word in Romans through the next few weeks. Amen.